I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, one-night stands are awkward, and in the AIDS era, they're dangerous. I need a girlfriend, and I need one now. Be careful what you wish for. Summer of 1987, and the era of AIDS is in full swing. The title track of Prince's Sign of the Times, referencing the big disease with a little name, is the song of the moment, and the BBC has just banned George Michaels. Two years ago, the death of Rock Hudson propagated the idea that AIDS was a gay disease, and surely I've rationalized the relative okayness of meeting and hooking up with women I've just met in light of my status as a straight, non-IV drug-using man. But AIDS is a worldwide epidemic, and no one is exempt from the risks. I know this now because the New York Times just told me so. According to the assorted scientists, pundits, prelates, and politicians quoted in a page one feature of the paper's science section, The only safe way to have sex is not to have it. Otherwise, you're playing Russian roulette. Unless you're married and you're with a sexual partner who has had no other sexual experience with someone else, adds New York's odious mayor, Ed Koch, just in case anyone's scheming for loopholes. 24 First Avenue previously housed a men-only sex club called Club Baths, which had been shuttered by the city, along with others like it, amid the spiraling AIDS crisis. Kane Suthon, a New Orleans-born lawyer come friend of the fabulous, including my pal Dave, has just purchased the space with plans to reopen it as an ancient Rome-themed restaurant called Cave Canem. Beware of dog. So Hain enlists Dave and his burgeoning construction company to do the interior demolition work, and one afternoon he takes me along when he goes to check on how work is progressing. Club Bass was actually part of a business chain, one of 40 or so venues operating around the country. Opening in 1970, the New York franchise was the city's first openly gay bathhouse, and dozens followed. Keith Haring lived across the street and was a regular there, especially on buddy nights, when people lined up in pairs to take advantage of the two-for-one deal that entailed no obligation to remain with whomever they happened to come in with. The club's entrance intimates nothing of what lies behind it. The company office, the first thing we encounter, is nondescript and all but empty, save for a wall covered with scores of Polaroid photos and driver's licenses tacked up in haphazard, overflowing rows. Dave says they belong to patrons who've been banned from the premises, and I wonder what anyone would have to do to get banned from a place where anything goes. Dave leads the way down a flight of stairs and into a room that opens up into a vast space. Its most notable remnant is a length of thick chain which descends from the apex of a vaulted tiled ceiling and ends in a kind of playground swing, only the seat part has some daylight showing through. Really puts the chain in business chain. We pass in silence by rows and rows of half-smashed wooden bunks resembling army barracks and down a corridor lined with cubicles, each big enough to hold a single cot. 
In the sub-basement is a neoclassical pool defiled by construction debris, which one day, at Haynes' direction, will be populated with koi. Just by riding the subway, living in Alphabet City, and going to clubs, a vast range of humanity is known to me by now. But standing on a floor strewn with thousands of popped poppers, peering at the ruins of a dying culture, I am at a loss as to what to feel. Dave, however, surmises that a three-man crew will be able to gut the rest of the place in a single day, a satisfying result. Before we go, both of us take hold of an industrial-strength hefty bag full of construction detritus and drag our loads to the company dumpster parked at the curb. Despite the New York Times, Ed Koch, and the infallible nature of rubbers, I continue my pursuits, albeit with a newfound sense of caution and dread. One example will suffice. Mary Beth is the wife of Dietrich, a well-connected friend of my roommate Dave's via the club scene, who is mostly interested in men at this point. One night, at some club or other, Mary Beth is after Dave again, but Dave is not one for repeat entanglements. So, with him unresponsive and me an eager substitute, also named Dave, Mary Beth settles for me. P.S. I'm shrooming. Briefly, we go to her place, I join her in the tub, and while we try to avoid any actual penetration, we're not completely successful. At which point, we both get totally freaked out. Because who knows? Who she's been with? Who her husband's been with? Who Dave's been with? The night haunts me for months, as do similar encounters in subsequent months. For this is the new math, and you have to factor it into every potential sexual encounter. Given their inherent tawdriness, one night stands suddenly count double. Waking up in a strange bed with someone you barely know, whose walk-up is covered in cat hair, and who wants to go get brunch when all you want to do is go home and take a shower, feels like distilled desperation and poor decision-making. Suffice to say, the authentic danger posed by sex with strangers and the abject awkwardness of such encounters makes the necessity of finding a dedicated girlfriend all the more urgent. A year later, I have one. We'll get back to this in a bit. Armed with a master's degree, I'm a preschool teacher at a private school in the West Village, located in a stately old church. Don't get me wrong, the school is not stuffy. In fact, it's an extremely progressive, learn-by-doing kind of place. As teachers, we're not here to hasten their growth or even teach them things, per se. Rather, our role is to facilitate the children's own discoveries via a variety of classroom materials, including water, sand, paint, wooden unit blocks, and variously textured, interlocking molded plastic doodads known in educational jargon as manipulatives. The approach we take is extremely specific. We deliberately don't say, I love your painting, Jojo. Instead, it's, ah, Jojo, I see you've put a little blue blob next to a small yellow blob. You know, leaving it open-ended and not just a mindless display of approval. Susan Sarandon's kids in the classroom down the hall. In April, my assistant Marcia, who despite her best efforts, never quite gets the reasoning behind the paint blob thing, has to bow out due to complications of a pregnancy I'm pretty sure she was not planning on. 
My employer, the church, looks within its ranks and finds a willing congregant to serve as a replacement for the final six weeks of the term. Amanda. She's a natural with the kids and skilled in all sorts of ways. She creates beautiful signs for the classroom, leads a miniature applesauce making symposium, becomes a magnet for some of the quieter girls, and bonus, easy on the eyes. Amanda is from the other end of the gene pool from me, with bold Nordic features, widely spaced blue eyes, and shoulder-length blonde hair. I find her regally pretty, but she's not reserved, not shy about her big laugh or making a goofy face to augment an anecdote. When our hands aren't full with books and mittens and paintbrushes, we stand back and watch our brood acting out their dramas, or we goof on something a snooty parent said at drop-off that morning and we talk about ourselves. Her husband is a remote stoner who runs a small but lucrative family business manufacturing buttons and trimmings. They married long ago, when she was still in college. Whatever warmth ever existed between the two has all but ceased to exist. He doesn't ask her about her day, won't hold her hand when they're out on the street together. Family dinners take place on their king-size bed in front of the TV. Hearing about Amanda's failing marriage, I reciprocate with tales about Clover, my girlfriend of a year or so, and co-tenant of a few months. Cracks in our happy couple facade have been showing even before Clover and I moved into a bright little Chelsea apartment together, a decision motivated as much by real estate as by a desire to cohabit. Fresh out of grad school and searching for suitable employment, Clover is stressed out and feeling insecure about our relationship. Worse, her foibles have stirred up a sense of peevish dissatisfaction in me. Clover smokes clove cigarettes, and her favorite color is crimson. She assures me this has nothing to do with the chart-topping hit by Tommy James and the Shondells, or even the remake by Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. She just genuinely prefers the taste of clove cigarettes and a certain shade of red. I've never quite believed it, and over time, I've started to wonder how many of her other quirks are self-concocted. Why else does she surround herself exclusively with people with obscure names? Is it a complete fluke that every last person in the social orbit of Clover Lynette Gribbets has a name like Sinjin, or Minard, or Beata? The mere existence of a casual friend named Amy or Mike or Chuck would blow the whole theory out of the water. Whenever a familiar song comes on the radio, Clover has to harmonize. Has to. It could be a song meant to be sung in unison, say, a Gregorian chant, Martin Luther's hymn, Ein feste Berg ist unser Gott, or Celebration by Cool and the Gang, and she'll still supply a harmonic counterpoint. The butterfly tattoo on her ankle, I recently decided, is corny as is Sugar Bear, her latest romantic nickname for me. Not to mention her dad, who insisted on meeting my folks for dinner very early on in the relationship, and over hanger steak and sweet potato fries, proceeded to recount an anecdote about jerking off an Irish setter with priapism. Angus, if memory serves. Amanda finds this all very amusing. 
The school year ends on a sticky day in early June. Teachers have to return the following week, mostly to clean their classrooms from top to bottom, which means Amanda and I will have a few days together, no kids around. We scrub the variously shaped wooden blocks, known as unit blocks, with Murphy oil soap. We set the brightly hued molded plastic bristle blocks in warm soapy bins. We funnel tempera paint in primary colors from jelly jars into plastic jugs. And since everything in a progressive early classroom is labeled, from where they stand when lining up to the shelves that house the manipulatives, there's much tape to be removed. And I don't mind at all. I've got Amanda in my midst, and my tapes are playing on the classroom boombox. This means the Smiths, the Chills, the Go-Betweens, the Feelies, Julian Cope, and all of it new to her. On the eve of our last day of classroom cleanup, I dismiss all sense of professional reserve or potential consequence and fall back on my collegiate training, setting out to make an irresistible, no-holds-barred mixtape for her to ponder over the summer and beyond. What do I have to lose? She's in a different league, age-wise and echelon-wise. She's married, unhappily married, but married, with two kids and a raging church habit. And when will I ever even see her again, now that she's no longer my assistant? This is before you could depend on the casual exchange of email addresses or a low-stakes social media follow. Unless we run into each other on the street, that's it. Our time is up. So I don't hold back. From the song titles alone, Deep Fascination, Why Won't You Stay, You Make Me Feel, the greatness and perfection of love, love, love. There's nothing the least bit subtle in my approach. Sometimes love is just the theme of a mixtape. Not every lyric is meant literally. In Love Goes On, when the go-betweens Grant McLennan sings, There's a cat in my alleyway Dreaming of birds that are blue Sometimes go when I'm lonely This is how I think about you I do not mean to suggest to Amanda that he speaks for me directly, but for love unrequited in general. The opening couplet of Throw Your Arms Around Me by Hunters and Collectors could get me arrested if she were to interpret it literally. But there are times when you choose a song because the singer expresses exactly how you feel, literally and poetically. The tape's final song, despite its seemingly vibe-killing title of Wet Blanket, is the most unambiguously about us. I spend the summer working as a burrito roller at Kitchen in Chelsea and fighting with Clover in the evenings. In mid-August, the director of the school calls to let me know that Amanda will be returning as my assistant. I feel a weird tingle in my stomach. At the first staff meeting, we have a moment together and she tells me that she and her husband are living apart as of a few weeks ago. 
And she's been listening to my tape all summer. During the first few weeks of school, when my mind should be focused on gaining an understanding of my students, their abilities and personalities, and what their parents are like, I am full-on obsessed with my assistant. At home with Clover, I concoct fictitious errands just so I can think about Amanda completely unfettered as I walk up and down 8th Avenue. Throughout much of the workday, the two of us engage in an ongoing conversation, verbal and otherwise. Some of our interactions suggest to me that something is going on here. I'll sense that, say, our hands have lingered together for an extra moment as we clasped and shook out a newly donated rug for the classroom's reading nook. Or I'll wonder, did we just hold eye contact for way longer than was strictly necessary during the fire drill? Because it sure felt that way. We're not flirtatious exactly, but when you know, you know. There's a small room off the classroom where we stow our personal stuff in old-fashioned school lockers. One morning, after escorting the kids down the hall for music instruction, we are there at the same time, and I pull her to me and I kiss her, quickly, because it's not at all safe to linger. And like Adrian and Rocky, she doesn't have to kiss me back, but she does. Golden brown, texture like sun, lays me down with my mind. She runs throughout the night, no need to fight. A few mornings later, she mentions that her kids will be picked up by an aunt that afternoon and will be spending the rest of the day with her. When class lets out, we clean up and chatter as usual, but when we're done, instead of going our separate directions, we amble together on an eastward course. Without a word being uttered, we queue up at the ticket window of the Art Greenwich Theatre on West 12th Street and buy tickets for a critically acclaimed film that's already in progress. And finally, we are alone together in the glorious, unsupervised dark. It's all so forbidden, so not okay, as we say to our young charges when a serious infraction occurs, like a kid biting another kid. The feeling is more intense than anything I've ever experienced. I'm about to explode, and it's mutual. Amanda tells me she gets overcome with a feeling in her chest when we're close together. She calls them clenches. As Amanda and I begin operating on the ultra-top secret down low, Clover and I begin to unravel. We meet with a relationship counselor, at her insistence and on her parents' dime, who listens to us and asks questions, and then speaks with us one-on-one, -on -one, where we can be more candid. I have to assume that it's after hearing my side of things that the therapist is convinced that breaking up is our wisest course of action. But we are married to the lease we signed on the apartment, and the landlord insists on being paid until he, or we, can find a new tenant. I put an ad in the Village Voice and squeeze in showings during my lunch break. One prospective couple says they like the place, while noting that they had to step over a pile of vomit on the way in, and also expressed concerns about the towering Covenant House rehab facility just up the block. The two may or may not be connected. When I can barely stand to look at the place, much less enter it, I begin staying at my sister's mercifully vacant apartment on the Upper West Side. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. I'm doomed. One afternoon, Clover shows up at my school in a state. She tells me she can no longer tolerate having to look at my personal items anymore and is going to put them out in the hallway. 
she finds my Sony Trinitron especially irksome. She leaves in a huff, and I chase her up East 9th Street in the freezing cold until I catch up to her and grab onto her jacket. My jacket, actually. Clover, my grandmother gave me that TV. Do not put it in the hallway where someone will steal it. Well, why the hell did you move out and leave it if it's so important to you? She says. Okay, then. That's my jacket. Enraged by having to first unsnap and then unzip my leather bomber jacket, thank you, Brooks Brothers Design Department, Clover shrugs it off her body in a perverse shimmy, panting from the accumulated effort and emitting fog clouds in the 30-degree weather. And uh, that's my sweater, I say, casually gesturing. Maintaining unbroken eye contact until the yanked sweater momentarily conceals her fierce glare, Clover slams down my crew neck and takes off westbound toward the slanting sun, wearing just a tank top and one of her flesh-colored antique-looking camisoles. I catch up with her, and once she agrees to not make good on her threat, she gets the clothes back. It's springtime when the landlord finally consents to let us out of the lease, for the low, low price of an additional one month's rent. Clover and I meet at the landlord's house in Tribeca to sign the final paperwork, and in minutes we're done. Time slows to a crawl as we await the Gilded Age-era elevator's return to the sixth floor. At one point, her father had threatened to sue me for breach of contract or something. This was a guy who saw things through to the bitter end. Just ask Angus. And Clover has finked out on various mutual associated costs along the way, out of her intense aggrievement, so there is no love lost here. The elevator arrives, and we descend to street level in a hostile silence you can taste. We start walking in opposite directions, and it dawns on me that our long national nightmare is finally over. I am truly free of her. Suddenly, I start to sashay like Groucho. Then I'm vertical leaping, my fist in the air, like the protesting Olympic athletes in 1968. And then I'm street-walking Travolta in the opening sequence of Saturday Night Fever. As I'm about to launch into a potentially injurious jeté, I feel, rather than hear, the ominous crescendo of rapidly approaching footsteps. I saw that! She shrieks. I saw that! You're celebrating? This makes you happy? Fuck you! You think you're so great? You're 28 years old and you make $18,000 a year. That's how great you are. As bemused New Yorkers veer nonchalantly out of our way, Clover has a few more choice words for me and my station in life before turning on her heel and burning up Broadway, never to be seen again. Until Facebook. Well, she hit me where it hurt. I'll say that for Clover. But I'm out of her financial yoke, and Amanda and I are free to carry on, as morally questionable as that may be. And we do carry on, for a good while after we stop teaching together and into the new decade. On nights when her kids are with Dad or their aunt, she makes me shrimp and couscous, because it's my favorite. No one has ever done this for me, taken the time to know what my favorite is, much less make it for me. On Sunday nights, we meet at Manhattan Chili and come back to her place in time to watch Twin Peaks. We take the subway to Long Beach, stopping to buy a bottle of Veuve Clicquot before we hit the sand, 
and we sip champagne in the sun and do crosswords and play backgammon on a blanket. On the train back home, we nod out, salty, sandy, and satisfied. One time we sneak out to the unoccupied second home of a friend of Amanda's where we luxuriate in a completely forbidden weekend together. We also grow close in ways that don't even involve stealth and cunning. The effect of that initial mixtape had been seismic. Apparently, Side of the Road by Lucinda Williams had provided the necessary push for Amanda to leave her husband. tape also revived her love of music in general. She started exploring the record shops she'd walked past for years without ever entering, chatting with the taciturn clerks at Kim's on St. Mark's Place to see what was new and interesting. One day she plays me Seizure by Chris Knox, one of the founding fathers of the New Zealand indie scene. I know nothing of him, and it floors me. She floors me. Those heart clenches she spoke about, I start getting them too. Next up, I catch a buzz in London with an MTV kingpin. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. <laughs>